welcome to episode 47 of the Web 2.0 show, where we interview Ezra from Engine Yard. I'm Josh Owens. And I'm Adam Stokowiak. This edition of the Web 2.0 show is sponsored by Peepcode Screencasts. Peepcode Screencasts, the most efficient way to learn Ruby on Rails, JavaScript, Git, Merb, and many other web development tools. After one hour of watching, you'll be up to speed on some of the most current technologies used for web development. Peepcode Screencasts are extensively researched and edited by expert alpha geeks, and they're available for just 9 bucks at peepcode.com. I'm pretty excited to have Peepcode on board as a sponsor. I've, uh, I've been too. a huge fan of their content since it came out. Um, you know, little one-hour chunks of goodness and uh, tutorial knowledge, I guess. And uh, really in depth. they have a, a lot of great stuff there if you go look at it. I think we used the Git peep code to learn Git. Yeah. Um, there's a there's a rumor that they're going to be doing a Cocoa screencast in the future as well. So I'm kind of excited about that. I, I'm kind of stoked to learn uh, maybe a little Objective C or Mac Ruby and uh, and how to how to program a Cocoa interface for your Mac. So that would be really awesome. This edition of the Web 2.0 show is also sponsored by Linode. Linode's custom virtual server control panel, the Linode Platform Manager, and Zen Virtualization put you in complete control of your virtual server. You can monitor your resource usage, configure your DNS, or even add more Linodes to your account to create your own server cluster. They have flexible terms, no setup fees, no prepay fees, no waiting, you can cancel at any time, and you can get a 7-day money-back guarantee. All you have to do is head to Linode.com for more information. I'm kind of excited about Linode because this is what we use for Handcrafted, and we've been very happy and very impressed with them ever since um, we used them. They sponsored the Rails Rumble um, back in 07, and we used it for that, and then we used it for Tasty Planner, and uh, you know now we're using it for Handcrafted. We have three slices there. You get a bare metal server, um, they have something like 10 OS's to choose from. We went with Ubuntu 8.04, and uh, I was able to do some setup work on it, then save off an image, and then copy that to our three slices, or our, yeah, all three of our slices, and uh, you know, kind of cut down on the setup time for setting up three servers. And then we have a private network setup on the back end that allows all three of them to communicate to create our our cluster. So, we, we've been very happy with them. Well, we uh, we also moved the client from a, uh, a hosting company that did say Rails hosting done right. I don't know who you are out there, but you might listen to the show. We moved the client from that to uh, Josh's new uh, setup on Ubuntu on the Node servers, and it is running fantastically. So, I'm really excited to see that happen. Indeed. Uh, just one thing to note, with Linode, if you're going to do it, it is kind of a bare metal setup, so it's probably best if you have some understanding of, uh, you know, what you're setting up. You know, you're going to have to set up Apache or, um, you know, Nginx or whatever you use. You're going to have to set that up. So it does kind of differ from something like Engine Yard, where they kind of hold your hand with deploying something like a Rails application 
or, um, you know, even where you go somewhere like DreamHost where you just FTP your files up there and all of a sudden it's hosted out on the web. It's not quite like that. You would actually set up the web server and you would be responsible for that. But they have a great community if you run into problems. They have a great IRC chat room. Um, they have a great forum where people will, will help you with your problems if you're running into issues. So that, that is kind of nice. Well, in this uh, in this episode, we actually ventured out to San Francisco to interview Ezra Zygmuntovich. As we all know, or if you don't know, Ezra was a uh, previous glass artist turned programmer. He's the co-founder of Engineard, and he's also the creator of Merb. Yep, Adam and I went to uh, San Francisco for the Web 2.0 Expo, and we decided to head over to South Park to meet up with Ezra, talk a bit about Rubinius. Uh, driving and managing a thriving open-source project, uh, MERB and how they're giving back to the Rails community, and also what's involved with supporting and running a high-volume site. I, I really enjoyed sitting down with Ezra. I think this is probably one of our, one of our more in-depth uh, interviews. Very good. Yeah, I enjoyed it as well. I kind of geeked out a little bit while I was talking to Ezra. So, you know, if I... Rambled on too much. Sorry about that, guys. <clears throat> also, a huge disclaimer for this one uh, before we get too much further into the episode. Engine Yard has been a sponsor in the past for the Web 2.0 show and likely will continue to do so in the future. Uh, we actually wrote the questions for this interview about a year and a half ago, a long time before we thought about taking on sponsorship. And uh, Ezra is such a busy guy. We sent him the email way back when. And uh, he finally was able to make time for us while we were there. Well, plus it was you know one of those face-to-face interviews too, so yeah, it made it a little easier to get to him when uh, we were able to just kind of walk into his office and be like, "Hey, uh, we were wanting to interview you for the show. Do you have some time? Like now? No, now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that worked out well. Yeah. <laughs> so he took us upstairs. Uh, in their office there, they have a special apartment. It was uh, it was quite swanky there. Yeah, it was. He, uh, I think he said he previously lived there in that apartment. Yeah, no, he was on the third floor. They had another apartment, and uh, they uh, after he moved out, they they were working on renovating while we were there the third floor to be more office space. Okay. The second floor was actually just kind of a corporate apartment. When they fly people out, um, they have something like 80 employees now, and, yeah. and uh, they fly people in all the time. So, Well, you know, the South Park area is a very posh area. Indeed. You could, uh, you could feel the Web 2.0-ness that was oozing in the air. Shiny objects everywhere, sheen, gradients. It had the complete Web 2.0 look and feel. You forgot the uh, rounded corner grass with the uh, the nice gradient on it. Yeah. That's <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, uh, anyways, enough about grass. Your mind's at Josh, but... Whatever, dude. <laughs> so, Ezra, he was sort of a cool dude. I mean, he was pretty laid back, really... He was really laid back. Yeah, he was. Uh, he was a little tight-lipped with us, too, though. Uh, we, we caught him right before they made some of their recent major announcements. He hints at some of the stuff, but uh, he didn't. He didn't actually give it up to us. Um, they've since announced that uh, 
they're working on Vertebrae, and it'll be open-sourced. Um, they just took $15 million in funding for Engineard, um, their Rails hosting, and uh, all the open-source stuff that they're doing. Right. Is, uh, so Vertebrae is a standalone product. Was, uh, wasn't it initially developed for in-house usage for, for uh, Engineard servers? Yeah, it was. It was developed in-house. Um, I guess it was just kind of like the logical step for them to take Vertebrae make it open source and, uh, you know, get the community feedback. Um, there's a couple other products out there that uh, aim to do kind of similar things and maybe approach it in a different way. And uh, I know even since he's just announced it and uh, started getting it out there in the open, um, th- there's been talk about Fuzzed and, and what they're doing with um, Erlang over at PowerSet. And uh, there's been some conversations about how maybe that could be integrated together or how they could could even build a better product. So it made a lot of sense for them. So can you give us some details, some deeper details on what Vertebrae is? Yeah, sure. It's uh, Vertebrae is something that's built on top of XMPP, the Extensible Messaging and Presence Protocol, which is um, also known as Jabber. Some people might be familiar with that. It's an open source um, IM platform. And Vertebrae is a server management package that's built on top of XMPP. So it allows your servers to be able to talk to each other. Um, They can talk to kind of a centralized area. I think they've even got it hooked up so that they'll, uh, they'll go into an IRC chat room and you can almost interact with them just by giving them commands and and whatnot. So, well, Seems like uh, seems like what Vertebrae is trying to accomplish is certainly something interesting. That's for sure. Um, just a few updates on the show. You may have noticed that we changed up the intro a bit. We tried to do a better job of introducing the interview early on uh, in the audio, and we'd gotten a very detailed email from a new listener named Fred Segor about the previous episode on Fire Eagle. I guess we had gotten about uh, 15 minutes into the episode before we'd actually given a decent explanation of what Fire Eagle was. So, Fred, thank you for taking the time to write to us. We'll definitely do our best in the future to uh, take your suggestion and apply it to all future episodes. On that note, if you have suggestions, feel free to email us, web2oshow at gmail.com, or follow us on Twitter. You can follow me. I'm uh, Josh Owens. Or you can follow Adam he is Adam Stack, A-D-A-M-S-T-A-C. Or you can also follow the Web2O show for uh, any breaking news on what we're working on. Also, we uh, we recently just set up the, the Handcrafted bot for uh, our Handcrafted company. That's true. So at Handcrafted, our Twitter for Handcrafted. We're, we're also for hire through our company, Handcrafted. So if you're looking to develop uh, – sorry, if you're looking for a development team to hit up your – Next Rails project or any future Rails projects, send us an email to hello at gethandcrafted.com. Awesome. Without further ado, here's our interview with Ezra. So this is part of our ongoing Web 2.0 Expo where we don't actually interview anyone at the Expo. We just go out in San Francisco and talk to all the other cool people. We went to the uh, Pivotal Labs yesterday, so very cool. cool. So we're here at the Engine Yard office with Ezra uh, Zygmuntovich. Zygmuntovich, okay. <laughs> Thank you. 
So tell us, uh, I guess, a little bit about yourself, Ezra, um, probably what you're famous for, and then we'll talk a little bit about engineering after that. Cool. Well, I'm Ezra Zygmuntovich. I don't know. I'm a uh, glass artist for most of the 90s, turned programmer in the 2000s here. Uh, I've been using Ruby since about 2002 or whatever, and then picked up Rails when it first came out in 2004, summer. And kind of built one of the first bigger production rail sites for the Yakima Herald newspaper way, way back in the day. And that was way back when the whole deployment aspect of rails was like way up in the air. Nobody knew how to do it right. People were trying all kinds of different stuff. And so I, being the only tech guy at the newspaper, had to figure out how to deploy this app. And it was decent size, like, you know, 250K hits a day or something. Uh and so I kind of got into that, got more into Linux, sysadmin and stuff, and kind of became one of the de facto deployment dudes in the community. Right. And just kind of went from there, hopped around to a few different jobs and done a bunch of open source projects. And uh, in like February of 2006, uh, Tom Ornini and Lance Wally and I got together and started talking about building Engine Yard as a company. Uh, cause we kind of, kind of saw a need through it through doing various consulting gigs. There was no real clear winner on who was the best production rails host and, and who did it right and made it simple for people. So we saw kind of a need there. And so we started working on engine yard, uh, lots of planning and stuff. And in, uh, August of 2006, we gathered up, scraped up from friends and family and angels about 140 K to get our first rack of servers and, and all that kind of good stuff, and uh, brought on Jason Van Toyle, our fourth founder, who's like our Zen Linux kernel geek, and uh, built the first cluster, started taking customers in October of 2006, and it's just been a crazy ride since then. Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, I-, I was talking to someone at your office the other day, and uh, they said, like, in the last six or seven months, you guys have gone from, like, 20 people to 60 people. Yeah, since we've uh, we moved to San Francisco to this office in October of last year, and okay. when we moved to this office, I think we were like 18 people or something, and now we're 65. Wow! All around the world, there's about 15 of us working out of this office, but uh, we got people in four continents all over the world, so we can do 24/7 support, and two data centers now, East Coast and West Coast, and one coming up in London pretty soon. Oh, I, I didn't realize you had two data centers now. That's pretty cool. Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, you have one in Sacramento. Is that where one of the data centers is? Yeah, the first data center is Heracles Data in Sacramento. Okay. And we've got a number of clusters there. And then we have another data center at Equinix in New Jersey. Uh, and that's newer. And we've got a couple of clusters there. More growing all the time. Right. And then we've got lots of clients. Uh, there seems to be a pretty big rail scene in the U.K., and uh, we've got lots of clients that are hosted on our on our uh, American data centers that are in the UK that have been moaning about getting us in the UK, and we've been trying for a while. So probably in the next couple of months, we'll have a couple clusters over there. Um, and uh, Jamie manages the the UK side of things over there for you guys. Uh, he did, but now he's uh, he's switched gears and gone on to our development team. Oh, really? Okay. So like, as Engineer has grown, we've become almost two companies like we're the hosting company and that's profitable and and sustainable and we're also uh, an open source company Mm -hmm. we have a number of open source projects that we're working on 
uh, Rubinias and Merb and some other stuff I can't really talk about yet. Right. Uh, but so we have about, you know, we took some venture capital money, a Series A round from Benchmark, like uh, at the end of last year, so we could pursue some of these open source projects we're working on. And uh, I think we have like 15 people working on development now, uh, working on a whole stack of stuff. So Jamie switched over to working on like internal tools and automation development stuff. Yeah, yeah, and I know he was developing cheese before he started yeah. working for you guys. Yeah, and he's like built our, he spearheaded our internal tool called Samurai that we use to like configure and build all customer slices on a data-driven type thing. Nice. So, uh, yeah, he's working on tools now. We've got a couple other people coming on in the UK. It's hard to keep track of. Like, I honestly don't know everybody that's working for us yet because we're a distributed team and new people are coming on all the time, but... Yeah, it's a, it's been a crazy ride, but it's been a fun, fun couple of years for sure. Yeah, it, it's definitely cool to see a company um, like you guys go out and hire people like uh, Evan, mm-hmm. who are working on Rubinius, and, and just kind of fuel his passion and really drive the development for the benefit of the rest of the community. I mean, obviously. Yeah. Once Rubinius is production ready, everyone will benefit from that. So yeah, I mean it's it's a win win, right? Like we, you know, there are some problems with the current Ruby platform, nothing insurmountable, and mostly fixed with Rubinius. And when it's production ready, that'll benefit everyone, and it just only makes the whole Ruby pie bigger. So our little slice of that gets bigger. So it's a win win, and it's something I'm really happy we were able to do. Uh, just because it's Rubinius is an awesome project, and being able to hire this team of kick-ass guys to work on it has been one of the highlights of this company. I think. Yeah. So, have you guys played with um, Mod Passenger at all? Yeah, I've played with it a bit, and it's very cool. Um, I don't. We're not going to be using it, um, but it's really good for I'd say smaller sites, and I think it's going to fix the shared hosting problem fairly well. But it doesn't, under my test, it didn't have any advantages for us uh, over our current stack. Oh, really? And you guys are using... We're on Nginx and, like, Mongrel Mongrel. or Thin. Uh, Do you have a lot of people using Thin in production? Yeah, we have about 30 people using Thin in production now. And we kind of switch some more all the time. Like, uh, Lighthouse is running on Thin right now and is doing pretty well. We just switched him over to that uh, pretty recently. Um, Yeah, I mean, Thin is, is not a... A complete replacement for generalized mongrel, like in a general case, because there's some differences of threaded versus event-driven servers. But if you have a fairly well-behaved Rails app that doesn't do any really long blocking requests, then Thin is really good. Hmm. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, so Mod Passenger is cool, though. I mean, they've done a really professional job with all the how simple it is to install and use, and that's just awesome for people just getting started. Yeah. You know, throw it up on your VPS and uh, go go to town pretty easily i would uh i'm a little disappointed that it's a mod rails and not like a mod rack um i'm pushing i think the ruby you know the ruby community is bigger than just the rails community and as things grow there's going to be more and more different specialized frameworks and and other stuff and i think that uh having everybody standardize on rack as a as a web server gateway interface like people on python do with mod whiskey is is a real win uh so yeah rack i think is a real good thing I've actually been spent like the last four or five days uh, deep in action pack source code, 
uh, porting back all the rack machinery I've built up in Merv back into Rails. Oh, uh, nice. Kind of trying to standardize that out. And I've, I'm down in some code there in, in the dispatcher and in the, the dispatch process that hasn't been touched in the change logs in like 18 or 20 months. And like <laughs> there would be dragons, right? There's, yeah. There's crazy stuff in there. I found like the way... Like with Thin has a rack adapter for Rails, and that's kind of what I started with. Uh, and if you, once I was actually able to figure out how the whole request traces through the stack, there was like a raw web server request from like Thin or Mongrel that gets wrapped in a rack environment, that gets wrapped in a rack request, that gets wrapped in a CGI wrapper, that gets wrapped in a CGI request nice. before it ever gets to the request object in your Rails controller. Right. And each one of those was like duping all the CGI headers. So I think there's a fairly significant like memory overhead and just general overhead in that. Like there doesn't need to be that many layers. So uh, part of the patching, I've been able to reduce that down to just two layers rather than five or something. Hmm, nice. So yeah, that should be should be cool. Uh, and and they're they're putting this in the core for 2.1. I don't think it'll be for 2.1 because no. 2.1 is like almost done. I yeah. think as far yeah. as from what I've heard from them, it's up on my. My GitHub repo, I've got a fork of Rails Edge. So this is probably more of a after 2.1 thing and mm, cool. still requires some polish. But, yeah, there's some guts there in Action Pack that haven't been looked at in a long time that are just kind of, I think, they got all tangled and they need to be straightened out. So I'm kind of trying to fix that a little bit. Yeah, David, David's favorite term is that's a highly optimized piece of code. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, just you were saying that you hadn't met everybody in the company must... Uh, for you being a founder, having such trust in the people you, you bring on the team. I mean, that's, yep. I was just going to add to that was just to, to have that certain trust level to not know everybody and know people are going to do awesome work and be yeah. excited about the company they're working for. Well, we've had a philosophy ever since we started the company of always try to hire people smarter than yourself, you know, <laughs> if you can. And yeah. so we've gotten lucky. We've gotten a lot of really smart people working for us. And as you get more smart people working for you, other people get interested. And so it's just kind of been this uh, uh, steamroller from there. So we've just, you know, as we, it's been interesting because, you know, we started with three people, have grown fairly rapidly. And so it's just interesting as you get bigger how things organize out and people rise up to be leaders or whatnot. So, yeah. but yeah, you got to, as you get bigger, you can't, and you're a founder, it's hard to, it's, if it's your startup, it's your baby. It's hard to like let go and not try to be involved in every little thing that goes on in the whole company. Mm-hmm. And so I've been trying dealing with that myself, trying not to stress out about every little thing because because it's just too many people now, too many balls in the air. I can't uh, I can't worry about it all. I got to trust that I've hired the right people and that they'll do the right thing. So how do you how do you guys come to like a consensus? I mean, do you fly people out to interview them, or how do you? What's the interview process, and how do you make that call to decide that maybe this is the right person for the company? Well, in general, we've uh, we've actually hired a bunch of people that have worked on our open source projects, that's, and that's a really good indicator of somebody who's a good hacker is seeing patches they've submitted to an open source project, whether it's ours or something else. Um, that's you know reading their blog. Uh, knowing them from IRC or mailing list or something uh, and kind of going on some gut, insti- gut instincts there. And then, yeah, we people are so distributed that, no, we don't fly everybody in for an interview. It's mostly remote or Skype or, 
you know, maybe a video chat or something. So you just generally know of them ahead of time for the most we, part? A l- most, for the most part, the people we've hired, we've known them a little bit ahead of time. Some people just have come out of the blue and have impressed us, and we've hired them. Uh, but in general, yeah, we've got a team of, I think, 35 people now that are um, either app support or sysadmin types. And, you know, to get into that team, and that's who, you know, answers our support tickets and phone lines and helps people deploy and stuff. And, you know, you have to be a Rails hacker or a Ruby hacker to get on app support, and you have to be real kick-ass sysadmin Linux guy to get on sysadmin team. And we've got some really, really good guys. Like recently, we, we hired this guy, Matt Palmer, from Australia as a sysadmin, and uh, we're hosting GitHub. Mm-hmm. And as they've grown, we've moved them onto a private cluster with Lighthouse so that Rails could move over and we wouldn't have to worry about uh, any interactions there. And uh, GitHub had basically all the Git repos are under the Git user. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you give them your SSH key right. and they were catting all everybody's SSH keys into one, one key authorized file. Key authorized file. key right. file. Yeah. And it was like four megabytes. And every time, in, you know, connections and pushing and pulling from Git over SSH were getting slower and slower as it had to scan this four megabyte key file yeah. every time. So Matt actually whipped out his old C skills and patched SSHD to authenticate against MySQL right. to get the keys. And that like totally fixed that problem for them. And I thought that was pretty impressive. Yeah, that was really impressive. I, I was actually in IRC like the night that... They were getting ready to push that out, and like I, don't, I think it was the next day they turned it on, and you could totally see the difference. Like I think probably fifty percent of my messages, like you know, permission denied, just right. went away. Yeah, it was it's much it was better. Pretty now. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. So uh, one of the other things we wanted to talk about was managing an open source project. I guess you you started Merb. Um, it's kind of like a, I guess, as a hack um, to to easily deploy small apps. Yep. And uh, it, it's grown from there to, to really be its own framework. Yep. Um, so tell us, I guess, about starting that and managing an open source project and, and some of the things that might be involved in that. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, it did almost, almost all good projects start off as a hack. Like, you know, Rubinius started off as a hack that Evan did kind of on the plane on the way to RubyConf 06, I think. And uh, so Merv started off as a hack to do, like, file uploads and just simple ERB templates in a really lightweight way. And then it became kind of just fun to hack on and something I would hack on in the evening or when I was bored. And then other people started using it and contributing patches, and so it kind of became its own project in its own right. And I kind of look at Merv as like an experimentation ground for, you know, refining rails a little bit as well. Uh, it's taken me a while to get the time, but I plan on backporting a significant number of things I've done in Mer back into rails to kind of help rails grow up a little bit in the application server area. Uh, but yeah, so Merv has grown into its own open source project and I've had a real, uh, open Evan and I kind of have the same open commit bit policy where, you know, if you give me a couple good patches, then I'll pretty much give you commit. So a lot of people get commit rights, and that really uh, that really lures people in, you know, because, oh, wow, I got commit. And it makes them, you'd think that maybe having too many committers would be a bad thing. People will be stepping all over the code base, but it's actually been really good. I mean, you have version control, so you can always roll back something if it's a really crappy patch uh, or commit. But uh, in general, 
you give people commit and it gives they have more respect for the project and so they're not going to just willy-nilly commit stuff and it draws them in oh i got commit so now you know they're going to do more work on the project and and uh yeah i just think the uh it's open source and i think with like github and everybody using github it's like it's really cool way of working with open source projects like now that rails is on there i've been waiting for that for a while and now that they're on there, like I can do this whole rack refactor of the dispatcher and stuff because I can do it on my own fork, still commit code to it without having to have any access to the core repo or anything. And I can you know, work on this thing and build it up until it's finished. And then I can be like, here, here's this uh, fork. You can pull it back into the trunk if you like, or, you know, get kind of makes things kind of changes open source projects into the survival of the fittest. Like if you're lagging, if you have an open source project and you're lagging and someone else forks it and it has a better fork, then they kind of become the de facto version of that project. There's some, like in the Linux kernel, they have, you know, Linus's branch is a little more aggressive and they have like the Andrew Morton branch, uh, the MM branch of Linux, which is a lot more conservative, but they both coexist and they're both completely viable. So I think it's just a, it makes a more friendly, open ecosystem and kind of does away with, like, this core team mentality where they guard the guard the repo kind of thing. Uh, and I think that's really good and really progressive. I think it's really cool that Rails is on Git now. Yeah, yeah, that's – um. we actually interviewed the Git, GitHub guys yesterday, so mm. that will be the, the episode right before this one. Cool. And uh, th- they were talking about a lot of the same stuff. Um, in particular, like, I, I launched a, a wiki – and I really hadn't been active on it for probably two months. And uh, someone in Australia just picked it up and decided he was going to start hacking on it. And, uh, you know, I was able to get uh, something like 20 commits. I pulled back, cherry-picked back from him. That's very cool. And the core uh, for my app. So it's cool stuff. Definitely. So going a, a little deeper into sort of managing the open source, besides putting it on Git and, uh, you know, giving the community sort of – um, the ability to you know fork and, and branch as they need to and, mm-hmm. and play and have fun with uh, with Merb and, and do that. But in terms of uh, like managing the community and beyond just the code itself, how do you right. how do you interact? How do you manage the interaction from you being the founder of, of Merb and kind of starting it? How do you right. manage the community behind it? So a lot of that stuff happens on IRC these days. It's the same for the Rubinius project. The IRC channel is like super active, and that's where. All the main committers are hanging out, and so if you have questions, you, you know you go in there. Where there's, we have the Merb IRC channel, and a lot of stuff happens in there. Uh, and we have you know mailing lists, and we got a wiki up now. So it's just kind of a matter of making a, a place where people can talk about it. Uh, the mailing list probably will become more active, and it's kind of nice because it's an archive of all the posts. IRC maybe is a little fleeting because unless somebody's logging the room, it kind of goes away. But it's more real-time, so you can get a lot more done with some lower bandwidth. Uh, so, yeah, it's just kind of, you know, you got to set a good example. You know, we've got, like, code convention style guidelines for Merb. And, uh, and also we, we made, a, like, a, a documentation spec where, you know, we've kind of made our own altered form of RDoc that has some extra information in there about what, you know, if a, if a method takes an options hash, what keys will it have and what values can it have and what's the return type of the method? And we've also adopted this uh, public and private and semi-private notation for methods in the, in the framework. So public methods are the interface 
that plug-in authors should use and, and people building applications should use and that will never break. And so we've separated our tests. We've got tests for the public interface, so we know we never break that. But we've got private method interfaces that are marked as private and are spec'd in a different private spec folder so that we can not lock ourselves in, so we can refactor the core code if, uh, as we see fit, as long as we don't break the public interface. So I think setting up some general guidelines like that has uh, laid the groundwork for lots of people to commit pretty good code because uh, we try not to, you know, everything should be documented with this new spec and tried, and everything should be spec'd and uh, kind of try and just run it like that. And if you, you know, it's kind of the broken window scenario, right? If you have a code base and you, like, leave little nagging things in there, other people start to put other little ugly pieces in there uh, just because, you know, the window's broken. Why not break another one or whatever? So Right, yeah. Ugly code breeds ugly code. Yeah. yeah. So I've tried to, you know, keep the philosophy of, like, keep it very simple. You know, simpler is better than complex metaprogramming every time if you can get away with it. And, uh, yeah, n you know, no code is faster than no code. So try to keep the code to a minimum and still accomplish what you want to accomplish. You also gave a talk recently. It was Mountain something. What was the, what was the conference? Yeah, it was a Mountain West RubyConf. And uh, on there you, you kind of detailed sort of why a sort of Merv came about. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think you kind of – can you give us some details further than what you had said there, maybe a little bit deeper that you didn't say about why you sort of forced the community to have – Rails, and then also to have Merb. Well, I mean, I didn't fork the community intentionally. It's just uh, Merb kind of grew into its own thing. And once, uh, especially with open source, once a project's got a life of its own, it's like it's got a life of its own. So, you know, while Merb is probably never going away, like it doesn't have to be this Merb versus Rails thing at all. They can both completely coexist. And you know, I still have a lot of a lot of faith in rails and i think that the core team has done a lot to open up development with git and with a number of other things you know they're open to these patches i'm going to be making so uh there's no reason that they can't to coexist i mean merb is my main use case for it is like web services uh lightweight fast web services and it's really good at that and there's no reason you can't use it alongside with your rails application for that kind of stuff yeah sorry um but, yeah, I mean, I, I never, I'm not trying to fork the community, and I'm not, like, trying to pitch Rails as a, a, or Merb as, like, a Rails killer. It's an alternative for certain things, but it does, definitely does not have all the cushy pieces that Rails has developed all, over the years. Uh, but it's more of an experimentation ground for, for different techniques and stuff, I think. Right. You also said you were pushing some things that, uh, some things that were, you were doing uh, to sort of optimize Rails in a sense, you're pushing it back into the Rails. Yeah, so too, yeah, so. so there's no reason that like the research and work I've done on Merv can't benefit everybody who runs Rails too. Because I mean, let's face it, Rails is like if you talk about Ruby web development, Rails is huge, right? Merv is maybe getting a little bit of adoption, but uh, I'm not trying to like be the next Rails or anything. I'm just making something useful and people find it useful and they use it. Uh, but yeah, that doesn't mean we can't push some love back into rails and kind of fix it up some too i think some of the like application server action pack stuff has been fairly neglected uh in favor of like some of the more racier new features and stuff but i think that uh, core team is is got a good attitude for rails 3.0 uh you know 2.1 is about to come out and then after that you know they're not 
as worried about maybe breaking some interface, you know, breaking some backwards compatibility lightly. They don't want to break everybody's apps too much, but I think Rails needs to like grow up and become a little more. I mean, it can still like it can still have its opinions, its opinion layer on top, but it needs you need to be able to remove those opinions when you have to, because right now the way Rails is, it, it's really good for the eighty twenty rule, right? You get you the you you can get the 80% done in rails faster than like any other platform. But I've seen, you know, hosting all these people's applications, I've seen a number of times where that last 20% of all these different apps, uh, is really hard and they have to fight the framework in order to get that last part done. And I'd like to see rails become a little bit more, a little bit more modular, uh, fix up some of the thread safety and dispatching issues that I'm working on and just become a little more, uh, a little more pragmatic uh, and a little more efficient. So, so yeah, I think Merb is actually good for Rails because, I mean, if Merb and Rails get into a performance battle, who wins? The users of both frameworks. You know, yeah, so. for sure. Um, <clears throat> I guess going back to something I asked earlier, when, when you're working, you mentioned having an open commit bit um, for both Merb and Rubinius. How do you do? You set forth like a document or some kind of like project guideline for people to follow that they can answer. Um, you know, would this fall in the scope of you know the project? I guess kind of like Rails right. having certain opinions about the way things are done, or in particular like um, the the wiki I wrote. Someone. The, the guy from Australia that was sending patches to me, um, he had pulled page caching out, and that was actually one of the core features of the wiki was to, to keep right. page caching in there. So how do you deal with that? So when I give people commit, I always tell them, you need to run any major changes by me or Yehuda or one of the other real core guys first uh, just to make sure it's in line with our philosophy, but that they're free to do minor bug fixes and changes and stuff without even asking. But just, and then it's also kind of you got to promote the general uh, ideas of your project. Uh, Merb is all about having this light core with opt-in features and stuff. So I'm pretty tight about what I let get into the core, uh, and then a little bit looser about what can go into like the additional Merb more and plugins and stuff. Uh, and I feel like the core should stay small and probably is all, like the Merb core right now is probably almost just feature complete and done. Uh, it's not 1.0 yet, but it will be, you know, fairly shortly. And I feel like that is a good thing to keep that core small and sealed off and then keep everything else as plugins until they become like so useful that everybody uses them. So maybe then they go in core or ship with Merv or whatever, but yeah, it's all about philosophy and you got to just make your community around your project aware of the philosophies and, um, you know, if you treat people like they're not dumb, then they usually aren't dumb a lot of the times. So you can, you can, in general, you can, if you build a nice, uh, you know, an open source community, the people that are attracted to your way of thinking are the people who you kind of want working on your project and they kind of get it and you can trust them pretty much, you know, and you've got revision control to roll back any stupid shit if you really have to. Yeah. But so far I haven't really had to much, maybe once or twice, roll back something. You know, engineered is the business, the, I would say the elite of mm -hmm. Rails hosting. So, in terms of the the landscape, where do you see yourself 
what is your goal, I guess? Like, where are you, right. where, what's your, where are you heading to? Right. So the hosting business is kind of just doing its thing. We're, we're seeing, you know, larger and larger companies adopting rails and, uh, you know, uh, a lot of bigger enterprises getting into it as well. Financial institutions, larger consulting companies, big name brand people you, you, I'm sure you'd heard of, but I can't really talk about, but it's, uh, yeah, the market is, is going places, I think. And especially if we can fix perceived and real issues of like the current Ruby interpreter and the current rails implementation, I think that the platform has a lot of legs and is, and is uh, going to be around for a long, long time. And we just see more and more adoption, bigger companies coming to us and tons of startups are still building their platforms on rails. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the ecosystem is very healthy at this point. Uh, and I see, I see that we'll, we'll just, I think we'll just continue to keep growing as more and more people depend on us to be their IT staff. Uh, and I think we'll see even larger adoption of Ruby and rails as all the alternate implementations mature. Uh, one really exciting thing actually that just happened, uh, the last couple days is, uh, the Ruby core team, Matt's and Koichi uh, and no- uh, Nobu, they decided to finally have like these Ruby design meetings with all the other alternate implementers. So they had like a meeting in IRC the other night uh, that went really well. Um, Rubinius has a project in it called the Ruby Specs, which is basically you know R spec compatible syntax, spec- executable specification of the Ruby language because there is no like written spec. It's just whatever uh, Matt's Ruby interpreter acts like. It's kind of the spec. And uh, JRuby and IronRuby and Rubinius, uh, they're all using the Rubinius test suite. Uh, I think there's now they're up to like 25,000 assertions in 6,000 spec files. Like they're getting a lot of uh, specification of the Ruby language. And so in that design meeting, Matt's and Koichi finally agreed to make the, the Rubinius specs the official spec for the Ruby language. Oh, wow. So we're going to be taking this Ruby specs project out of the Rubinius repo to make it its own standalone thing that all the imp- implementations can use to test their implementations. And that'll help a lot in keeping all these different Rubies from fragmenting like JavaScript has or some of Lisp has or, you know, scheme, uh, which I think is really important. And it's also good because, you know, like, Ruby core, they don't really test their stuff. They're working on this great big project and they push out these point releases that break a lot of stuff. And we've started like, you know, we run our continuous integration against Rubinius and against Matt's Ruby. Uh, and they like, they released one Ruby one eight six patch level one fourteen, and it broke like 40 specs and we caught it and they had no idea because they're not running spec suite. And Ruby 187 preview release broke like another 60 specs and a bunch of other stuff and wouldn't even run Rails. Yeah, I've and heard it's some like bad stuff about 187. Fiasco. So, and that's because they don't run any automated test suite. And they've got Ruby is such a big project, it's ridiculous to not have a test suite. So, but it's cool. They've they've accepted the Ruby specs as the official spec, and they're going to be continuously integrating uh, the 18 branch and Ruby 19. There'll be a branch of the Ruby specs for Ruby 19. And they're going to start running these automated on check-in and stuff. And I think this is going to be a huge improvement for regression testing and for Ruby going forward for all the implementations. So I think that's really, really cool. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. In particular, 
maybe talk about how your clusters are set up and what it takes to run, you know, kind of a, a high-volume website. Um, you know, I, I know in the stack description you may get to some Ruby-specific or Rails-specific stuff, but I think it would be good for people to hear just, you know, what's involved with with running a, a high-volume site. Sure. Um, so, yeah, we built a pretty cool, like, clustered cloud computing platform. Uh, it's basically... Yeah, uh, a cluster starts off life as a 48U rack with six 24-disc sand shelves in it and 18 compute nodes. And the compute nodes all have 32 gigs of RAM and eight CPUs. And everything in the cluster boots off the SAN. So all of our compute nodes have a USB thumb tab in them, which has a basic DOM0 uh, Zen image that can boot the servers and then they pivot mount uh, their actual DOM zero off the SAN. So our servers all pivot mount off USB onto the SAN and then all customer slices are running on the SAN as well and they boot up. What this allows for is when a node fails, all we have to do is, you know, we've got a, a spare node sitting in every rack usually, or, you know, either we replace the dead node or just pull its USB thumb tab and stick it in the, the, the racked node and it just boots right back up right off the SAN. So it's not tied to... People's slices aren't tied to a specific node. They're basically, they live on the sand and they get booted up like that. And then there's, so the way it works is when you get set up on Engine Yard, uh, usually we recommend at least two slices for your production application because then you're on two physical machines and you're load balanced. And that way, if we need to do maintenance or reboot or you know put a new kernel in one of your slices, we can do it one at a time without taking your slice offline just to have slightly reduced capacity for a few minutes. And one of the other special features we have that no other hosting company really offers is uh, clustered GFS file systems. So if you have two production slices, you have a, a shared clustered GFS file system mounted at slash data that all of your Rails application code gets deployed to, all of your page and fragment caches or any upload images or whatever generated assets get stored on there. So you have these two slices. They both have a consistent view of this file system. And as you want to scale up, we can just clone one of your slices that's already pre-configured, boot it up on another node, have it mount the GFS file system, and then it just boots its mongrels and its Nginx web server and joins in the cluster behind the load balancer. So that allows us to easily scale your application without you changing your application code from you know one slice all the way up to about 16 or so slices is about the limit of a GFS file system. And uh, it's proven to be like super useful. Like it makes deploying Rails applications much easier, uh, especially for something like GitHub where they have this huge amount of Git repos and they have all this processing going on, people forking each other's repos, their background webhooks kicking off and all this stuff. And it's way too much stuff to run on one server. So having that GFS file system and being able to spread the load over five or six slices, uh, but they still all see the same Git repos and the same file system is is really useful. Hmm. Interesting. And then you guys have um, MySQL actually lives somewhere else, like right for their right. database Postgres. Yeah. MySQL. So we so you're when you get an engineered slice, it's kind of a vertical slice of the cluster. You're getting you know, access to the load balancers, to the SAN, to the compute nodes. You have your virtual machine that basically runs your mongrels and an Nginx process. 
uh, and any cron jobs or background tasks you might need to run, but nothing else runs in your slices. The databases like Subversion, Git repos, SMTP servers, DNS servers all run just in the cloud. Uh, and all the MySQL and Postgres servers are master-slave uh, replication setup, and they're all tuned by the MySQL performance blog guys. And, you know, we we do weekly reports on customers' databases and send them reports whether they could add an index or they how to fix a certain query to run much faster. Uh, so it's kind of a, a, a pretty high-level service, and I think that, that uh, not, a other, not a lot of other hosts offer that kind of stuff. Uh, so our databases perform really well. People always kind of worry that the data, relational database is going to become the bottleneck for their app and they're going to be the next Google and all this stuff. And and while that's true for some some sites, like we have a couple sites where we're doing like federated and sharded MySQL setups for them, the general case is that a single master and a slave scales pretty dang far. And if you tune it right, you give it enough RAM and disk I.O., and you tune the SQL queries, uh, you know, sites can go very big without having to worry about doing anything more complex than talking to a master and a slave. So I think a lot of people overestimate what they're going to need in database power, although the tuning helps a lot because if you don't tune and you just use all the defaults that Rails spits out, you're going to have problems. Right, uh, yeah. And I, I think we ran I mean, into that with Tasty Planner, actually. Sure. We... Um, uh, I guess we didn't mention this, but Tasty Planner's hosted at Engine Yard since we won the Rails Rumble, and uh, I don't—I think it was back in February. We deployed um, our our latest version of the code that's running out on the site, and uh, we had done a bunch of uh, like nested includes mm-hmm. on a on a page call, and uh, we saw like we actually killed mon- like all our mongrels. Like yeah. anytime someone would hit a recipe page, it would, they would blow it up to yeah. be hundreds and hundreds of megabytes. Yeah. Like they were hitting like six hundred megabytes, <laughs> and then they would just die. And uh, we ended up having to pull out the includes. But that's been like the number one cause of perceived memory leaks. It's not necessarily a memory leak, but people, uh, you know, add these nested includes to their finder calls, and it works great on their development or staging database. But then it gets out in production and your data set size grows. You know, you have a social network or whatever and you're doing this big include query. And you'll just hit the wall where it'll start pulling back thousands and thousands of records that you didn't, you're not going to use. And wrapping each of those in an active record object is very expensive memory-wise. So that's probably the number one thing we see of people getting their mongrels or just blowed up to hundreds and hundreds of megabytes is using include uh, too, too much or, or without thinking about their data set and stuff. Right. So, so do you guys do a lot of tuning for your customers? I mean, do people come yeah. to you and ask for that help, or do you guys just, you know, if you see something is is maybe blowing up, do you actively seek them out and, and yeah, say, hey, I mean, we we're help? you know we're monitoring everybody's slices and stuff, and so we know when somebody's app starts misbehaving, or we can see if they're hammering the database or if they're going to swap on their slices and stuff. And generally, since we host so many Rails applications. You know, like Rails has all these conventions, how the how the application's laid out, how you do things, and that's allowed us to have a standard convention on the stack we have on the slices. So even though we're running two thousand or so virtual machines, every single one of them is configured is like the same. You know, Nginx, Mongrel or Thin, Monit, uh, GFS, all that kind of stuff. So having the same stack 
you know, multiplied by however many customers we get to, we've already hit like all the pain points and corner cases. And you, when one customer hits some edge case and you finally solve it, that like fixes it for the whole cl- you know, for everybody. So it's gotten highly tuned and optimized. So now we have, there's like generally a few repeating problems we see in different people's apps, like the include thing or like dealing with, you know, our magic type stuff right. or, you know, in general, just, uh, being inefficient with the database and stuff. So we, you know, we're monitoring stuff. We see when somebody's misbehaving and we'll try to figure out why and give them some tips on how to fix it uh, and kind of go from there. Two questions we always ask, or at least I like to ask, just because I think it's helpful. Um, if there's, you know, like, any sort of books, blogs, people you follow, kind of, you know, anybody you're a real fan of, want to talk about them or why you – to, to kind of come from where you came from to where you are now, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Uh, I'd have to look at my feed reader to see who I follow <laughs> anymore. That's probably Caddy Sierra said, too. Yeah. She's like, I, I follow so much or I'm involved in so much. She's like, I don't even know what the, the website's names are. Yeah, like I read a lot, you know, and I uh, like, you know, read Hacker News, Y Combinator site a lot. There's a lot of good links on there. And, uh, you know. Sometimes I get overloaded with all the RSS feeds and trying to keep up on the community because the community, it used to be this small little thing and you could like keep up on every development. And that's like, right. I was all, I was very into rails. Like when it first came out for the first couple of years and I was you know, on the mailing list, thousands of posts on there and you could like really keep your finger on the pulse of what everything that was going on. But now it's just, it's become too big. There's so much going on, uh, that, you know, it's, it's hard to get the whole picture, but yeah, there's a lot of a lot of good stuff going on these days. It's just it's hard to keep up with everything. Uh, books. I really like the Pragmatic Programmer. I read that. Uh, what is it from? Apprentice to I don't know what the subtitle is. Anyway, that's a really good book. Like in general, just about uh, development process and, and uh, debugging and all that kind of stuff. Just as a developer in general, it's a good book. Uh, what else? I don't know. Writing a book was a whole other experience. Uh, finally, it's it's finally been it's finally finished and it's going to print on my de- deploying Rails application book for the Pragmatics. And man, that's been you know been being written for like two plus or two years now or something. And Rails deployment changed like so much that I've rewritten the thing three times and brought on some really smart co-authors to help me because I've been so busy with engine yard, finished the thing up and it's finally finished, uh, which is really cool. So, but I, you know, it turns out that I'm not a very good writer. Uh, and I probably, ne- you know, I'll probably never write another book again myself. Like I, I would help with one or whatever, but that was a big writing. A book is a big project. So I've got a lot of respect for people that, that write these big books and stuff. Yeah. So people should go buy your book if they want to deploy a Rails app. Yeah, sure. <laughs> cool. It's, it's um, the I guess the last question we always ask someone is, uh, do you have anything super secret that you want to reveal right here on our show for all, all our listeners? Uh, I, yeah, sure, but I I don't know if I can. I don't think really think I can yet. Uh, I I can just say that we've got some really very cool, innovative cloud computing stuff coming up. Some open source projects and some very intriguing stuff. So EC2 should be afraid. Uh, we'll see. 
Uh, yeah. No, not necessarily. EC2 <laughs> might be involved as well, but that's all I can really say. So Awesome. Yeah. So Google App Engine should be afraid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks for being on the show, Ezra. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for coming and, and hanging out a little bit. Nice talking with you. This edition of the Web 2.0 Show was sponsored by Peepcode Screencasts and Linode. Visit Peepcode Screencasts at peepcode.com and Linode at linode.com. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Web 2.0 Show with Josh Owens and Adam Stachowiak. Tune in every two weeks for in-depth interviews with the hottest people on the web, building the coolest sites ever. The Web 2.0 Show is a handcrafted podcast. Visit handcrafted at gethandcrafted.com. Dot com.